together. So um, why don't you guys open your Bibles right now to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 is where we're going to be heading right now. Let's take a look at the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. Um, so we started the book of Daniel several weeks ago. If you guys don't have Bibles, why don't you raise your hand? We have some ushers that would love to get your Bible. Um, we started the book of Daniel several weeks ago. We were in a summer-long series uh, looking verse by verse, chapter by chapter at the book of Daniel. And I mentioned uh, before, uh, by way of uh, re- you know, looking back, we are going to spend times in the book of Daniel really focusing on a handful of verses, um, and we're not going to get very far. There's going to be other occasions where we're going to be flying altitude-wise 30,000 feet above the text and trying to make bigger overviews. I, I think that's how the text is to be read. Um, sometimes you're digging deep, sometimes you're flying high, so that's kind of how we're going to be looking at this. Uh, right now, we're going to be looking a little bit deeper at the text and trying to make some sense as to what this chapter is all about, and more in particular, like, what does God want to speak to us through it? So with that, I want to begin with two statements and a question, and I'll give you a little bit of outline what we'll look at, but the first thing by way of just jumping into this, I got a nice little slide for you guys with some images. So two questions, or two statements and a question. The first statement is, human beings are given charge to rule. That's Genesis 1 and 2, if you're, if you're unfamiliar with the storyline of the Bible. Um, Genesis, the, the Bible, the whole Bible uh, narrative opens with this really, really important declaration that God creates all things, um, and then God creates human beings in his likeness and in his image. And then he gives them a vocation. The vocation is that they are to rule and reign over the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the things that swim in the sea. The big idea is that human beings are, are, are to be given ownership, stewardship, leadership, uh, governance, if you want to think of it that way, upper management, all right, over planet Earth. Everything terrestrial is to be given over to humanity. And we know, obviously, in order to do that well, you got, you got to have wisdom. We looked at that last week. If you were not here last week, I highly recommend checking out the message. We talked a little bit about wisdom. That was the most important idea, takeaway. Um, but we also know that humans are wired to rule. So human beings, you and I, we are wired to rule. It's just how we are shaped. Now, again, we've got different capacities, different uh, arenas in which we rule in. And as I was thinking about this, that uh, we are wired for this, uh, anywhere from organizing one's bedroom Um, to planting urban gardens, to mastering a boy band genre, to creating edible beauty, to, uh, uh, you know, leading the parks and rec department in your small town, right? We we are wired to rule. That's kind of what this image is all about. All of these are examples of of ruling, ruling. This is is how I want you to think about what it means to rule. Um, Because, again, I think for the most part, we tend to think of ruling in the context of a tyrant, someone that has an authoritarian upper hand, and puts everybody else under their fingernail. And that's, that is a distortion of rulership. That, that's the way rulership in human history has gone. And what I would suggest is rulership in God's ideal is entirely different. So if your understanding, if our understanding collectively of rulership is um, oppressing other people, then we have a distorted understanding and the invitation is to rethink leadership and rulership in light of, of the gospel, in light of God. So with that being said, as I was thinking about this, this leads to the last question, which is, or the question is, um, how, should all, how should all of this actually be ruled? What does ruling well look like, if you want to think of it another way? Um, how, did, how did God envision this? Um, again, you can get traces or elements of this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but everything goes south pretty quickly, because by page 3 of the Bible, everything kind of falls by the wayside, and there is, a, there is rulership happening, but immediately following the uh, Adam and Eve story, you have rulership gone awry, because you have Cain killing his own brother, his own flesh and blood, 
And then you have these continuation of distortions leading up to, you know, what, chapter 9 or something like that, the Bible, 10, where you, we get to the statue or the, the image of, of Babylon or Tower of Babel. And you, just, you see all human history kind of move in this direction towards distortion of, of leadership. And so what I want to do here this morning is I want to kind of go back into the text with this idea or this theme in mind of what it means to rule well, because I think this plays in the story. So with that being said, I want to jump in. I'll give you a little bit of an outline as to what we'll be looking at. In chapter 2, we'll just, uh, uh, as I was kind of setting, preparing for this, I realized I, there's way more content that I had, and I didn't want to, like, speak for an hour and a half. You're welcome. So I thought I'd just kind of break it down. So I actually gave myself, like, like a week off, because that means I took my message, cut it in half, and I'm doing half this week, the other half next week. So here we go. Um, so what we'll do is we'll take a look at, um, first of all, verses 25 through 45, um, again, like I said last week, if you weren't here, we got from verse 1 all the way to chapter uh, 2, verse 24. Um, so we'll take a look at the dream of the golden image with the feet of clay. Again, kind of a lengthy title, but it all makes sense in a moment. The second thing we'll take a look at is the rock which became a mountain. And this, this is language that's actually borrowed directly from the story, which will make sense as we uh, jump into it. So those are the, those are the two main uh, headers, ideas, concepts that we'll take a look at in this, and hopefully it'll all make sense as we jump into it and begin to get to work. So let's jump in and begin to take a look at, first of all, verses uh, 25 through 45, which is the dream of a golden image with clay, feet of clay. So what I want to do is I'm going to actually read the whole passage. It's very fairly lengthy, but hopefully um, it will make sense. Uh, the passage breaks up kind of nicely into two sections. One is um, the description of the dream. Um, that the king has, and then there is the interpretation. So think of it this way, um, what the dream is and what the dream means. Those are the two elements of this. So a little bit of backstory, um, just to kind of recap in case you missed it last week. Um, the Daniel chapter 2 starts out, um, actually Daniel 1 starts out, there's a guy named Daniel and his three buddies. These, these are uh, youths, probably age 15, 16, maybe a little bit older than that, um, young guys that were taken from Jerusalem. They were deported from Jerusalem. Their entire city experienced, um, uh, you know, 9-11. But it wasn't just any 9-11 that was located to a particular region. Their entire country was decimated. And um, what we're told is that all the most profoundly smart, literate, you know, bright, young, good-looking, um, nobility people, the elite, the 1%, however you want to think of it, they were basically taken from Jerusalem and brought into Babylon. The whole aim of this was to take the best, the brightest minds and to put them through sort of a social engineering or re-engineering, reprogramming, to, to take away, uh, to deconstruct any form of Jewishness, to reconstruct the form of Babylonian. So the whole idea was to take these bright, young Jewish minds and make them Babylon, Babylonian. So that was going on. And if you remember, Daniel and his three buddies, they had to walk this like fine line between how, how do we maintain our Jewish identity uh, as being followers of Yahweh, but simultaneously live in a foreign country and not having the support network of, you know, being able to go to the temple and study scripture and do all these things that we were accustomed to, and how do we maintain this? And uh, it's, it's not easy, but they, they were able to do it. Um, we're told that Daniel had this unique ability to, to understand visions and to, give, to read dreams, to know, know what this is all about, which was super convenient because uh, Babylon actually had a whole entire business or career um, developed around this entire thing. Imagine going to Cal Poly and be like, I want to sign up for like the dream interpretation class. Like that's, that's what they had in Babylon. So, so that was Daniel and his three buddies. They were part of this whole class, right? And then they get on the king's payroll. So now um, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He doesn't remember what the dream is. So that's kind of the 
plays a little bit into the irony of the whole dream. And the king goes on, and he calls those that are on his payroll. He's like, hey, you guys, I hired you to interpret my dream. Um, interpret my dream. And the payroll guys are like, hey, what was the dream? And the king's like, that's the catch, is I don't remember my dream. So I need you to tell me what I dreamed, and then tell me what the dream was. And he's like, oh, by the way, and if you, if you can't tell me what the dream was, I'm going to dismember you. Every limb, every, you know, extremity on your body will be plucked off and redistributed throughout the entire, you know, landscape, and I will turn your house into a, into a sewage factory, all right? So I, I'm not making this stuff up. You're like, it's there in the text, right? So the, the king, obviously, is, is, is a powerful tyrant. You don't mess with powerful tyrants. And so um, Daniel finds out about this because the king issues this de- decree that all of the king's soothsayers, that's what these people were, um, were going to be killed. So Daniel's part of this team, and he's going to be put to death. And so Daniel has this unique opportunity to speak to the, the chief hitman, and he's like, hey, his name's Ariok, and he's like, hey, um, can you buy me a little bit of time? And then he talks to the king, and he says, give me a little bit of time, and me and my buddies, we will pray, um, and we will seek God, the God of heavens, and we will get an answer, and we'll bring the answer back to you. So that's a little bit caught up to speed as to where we're at right now. So let's jump in and begin to read about the dream um, of the golden image with the feet of clay. So ready? Think of this as story time with Pastor B, like I oftentimes like to say. So here we go. Then the Ariok, that's the hitman, brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and he said to him, I have found among the exiles of Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And then Daniel answered and said to the king, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked for. Next. He says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals the mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Um, there's all this speculation as what the word latter days mean, but don't get hung up on that right now. Think of this perhaps in the latter days of the king's, he's, the king has a bad dream, he's trying to figure, make sense of this, and he's telling him, here's, here's what's going to happen. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in the bed came thoughts of what would after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what it is to be. So in other words, question um, at this point right now, where did the dream come from? Who, who gave this king the dream? What's the source? God. It wasn't his pepperoni pizza the night before. It was God. God gave him this dream, which is, again, we, we paused and reflected upon this last week, which is fascinating. Um, who, who, does, who does God talk to? Apparently anybody. Apparently anybody. So, so the whole religious mindset that says only God talks to the uniquely holy people that are part of our tribe uh, is apparently uh, a misconception and a myth. It's false. Um, God talks to whomever he wants, whenever he wants, apparently, wherever he wants, actually, because this is not Jerusalem. This is not in the holy sacred space. This is in Babylon, right? This is literally in world militaristic superpower that's antithetical to everything that Yahweh stands for. And in the midst of this palace of the pagan head of the entire known world empire, God is speaking. And this is amazing. Here's what he goes on to say, verse 30. But for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, uh, not because of any wisdom that I have more than any other living, uh, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So, again, just interesting thought is that 
Daniel's incredibly humble. I mean, that, that becomes very apparent here. Daniel's not out trying to, like, um, make a name for himself. He, I mean, he could have completely run with this and been like, look, I did this because I'm unique and I'm special and because that's what everybody's told me. And that's what I tell myself. You know, my self-esteem is really high. But Daniel's just like, look, at the end of the day, I can't do this. this I don't have the power to do this. But God does. God is powerful. And God has given you something. And God has given me something. And I want to unveil to you what, what this something is. And that's where we begin to see. Uh, so we see this first image. So this will play into that. So if you're unfamiliar with this image, again, this is someone's drawing, of course. But um, um, it goes on to say, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. And the head of this image was of fine gold, its chest, arms of silver, its middle and thighs, bronze, uh, its legs, iron, its feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone that was caught out by no human hand, and it struck the image at its feet. So that thing on the bottom is supposed to be, I don't know, a meteor or something like that, coming down, striking the feet of the iron clay. And then it says, and it broke them all into pieces. Next slide. He goes on to say, then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold, and together they were all broken into pieces, and they became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. Floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So, so there's the dream. Crazy dream. Right? Imagine, here's the king. He, he has this dream, and uh, perhaps he has it on a recurring basis. We don't really know. But the point of the matter is, whatever this dream was, when he had this, it absolutely frightened him. And uh, you can imagine why this would be frightening to him. Um, he sees this, this head of gold, and he's trying to make sense of what this is. Now we enter into the second aspect of this, which is not just the dream itself, but what the dream actually means, what we would describe as interpretation. So you can have the ability to kind of identify something, but then the bigger question, which is, well, what does that something mean? Um, that's what we would describe as, as interpretation. And now Daniel's about to tell him, here's what the dream actually means. Again, remember, Daniel's not making this stuff up. He's not just kind of tapping into his like, inner like, ideas and concepts. Daniel's uh, speaking um, on behalf of God, for God. God has revealed this to, to Daniel. He's humble enough to acknowledge that. And then he's communicating. This is, this is how God has revealed the, the aspect of what this dream actually means. This, is, this was a dream. Now we will tell you uh, the king and its interpretation. Next slide. He goes on to say, you, O king... Oh, um, you, O king, the king of kings, of whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory. So just pause real quick and think about this real quick. So who, again, who is Nebuchadnezzar? He is, he is not just a king, which, um, but he's the king of kings. I mean, king of all other kings. Um, that's what an empire is, by the way. An empire is not just a, a you know, community that has dominion over a particular area. It's, it's multiple areas that have multiple kings or uh, vassal kingdoms, I guess is what they would call it, vassal kings, people that are like subordinates, if you want to think of it that way, they might rule over a particular region, but you are the king of those kings. Um, so that, that's not a foreign, weird term. It's just simply stating the fact that you are the king of kings, which, by the way, Babylon is, is not only the oldest of empires, but some stuff that I had read was actually one of the very first like world empires that spanned a very, very lengthy stretch of, of territory. Um, Egypt was actually a little bit older than, of course, if you remember back in the Bible, uh, the Egyptians took the Jewish people, but it wasn't, it wasn't expansive like the Babylonian Empire was. So 
um, this guy Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Um, and then he goes on, he says, but the, the God of heaven has given the, you the kingdom. But the point that I think that Daniel's trying to make, that to me is pretty profound. Um, now again, Daniel could be trading on thin ice already. All right? I mean, he's already had this like death warrant issued out to him. And so everything is thin in Daniel's life right now. So if he makes a mistake, um, again, it's not just like, you're fired. It's like, you're going to be torn limb from limb. I mean, think the most horrible, torturous type of death. That's what would have happened to Daniel. And so Daniel walks in, and he's like, you, O king of kings, are the king of kings, right? So, so far, so good. He's like, the God of heaven, the God who is above you, you may be king of this terrestrial world, but there's a God who has greater authority, greater power, who's higher than you, who is speaking. In other words, again, uh, typically tyrants, they don't like to be out-tyranted, right? They, they like to know that they're at the top of the food chain. And what Daniel is saying is there's someone greater than you, higher than you, above you, stronger than you, wiser than you, and, and this is the one that's going to reveal to you what you saw in your dream. Verse 38. You guys, you guys doing all right so far? All right, good. All right. Verse 38. He says, and into the, whose hand he has given uh, wherever they dwell, and the children of men, the beasts of the fields, and the birds of heaven, making you ruler over them. Uh, then he goes, says this little phrase, you are the head of gold. But before we get to the you are the head of gold, um, just take a look at that phrase again. You're the king um, over, and you have power over all the children of men, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. Um, I'm, I'm fairly confident that as the writer is telling us the story, this is a, a head nod back to Genesis 1 and 2. Right? Catch up? It's, it's a wink back to the beginning sequence of the Bible, which depicts humanity uh, who is tasked with the responsibility to rule and reign. Now, if you, again, you're familiar with the story of Genesis, um, their rulership and reigning did not go too well because they inevitably gave the reins over to a serpent which was you know, seduced by spiritual unseen forces that were powerful and dark, and Adam and Eve then kind of spiraled down into this like, world of, of brokenness, chaos, and destruction. And so now we are, we are seeing language that's describing someone that was given the task to rule and subsequent kingdoms that were all given the same task to rule. And this is kind of the, the author's way of basically saying, hey, this is part of the whole human story. Humanity, human beings, given the role, given the task, given the vocation to rule and reign. The question is, how are they doing? How are you doing? How are you doing in your ruling and reign? What does your ruling and reigning look like in your life? We'll come back to that in just a moment. But this is the point that I think the author wants us just to pause, to take in, to look at. It's easy to look at a tyrant, a world empire, you know, governed by this guy like Nebuchadnezzar, and be really quick to like, point out his flaws and his arrogance and so on, because he's got a lot of it, by the way, and the writer wants us to see that. But it also takes, I think, an act of the spirit to look at our own lives through that same lens and say, how, how am I doing? Um, what elements or trace elements are in me that are reflective of me, uh, that are reflective of Nebuchadnezzar, I should say, in me? Um, and he goes on to say, um, he says, you are the head of gold. So very clear in the statue or in the picture, this is who the, the golden head represents. Uh, it goes on to say, in another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet the third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Next slide. He goes on to say, and there, were, there shall be fourth, a fourth kingdom, strong and is iron, because it breaks, iron breaks in pieces and shatters all things, and like iron it crushes. It shall break and crush all things, all of you. And it, 
And as, I, and as you saw the feet of toes, um, on the toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be divided, kingdom. And some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. Verse 42, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdoms shall be partly strong and partly brittle. So just pause real quick and just think about this. So um, I'm not going to get into what these kingdoms might represent. I think that's for another time in the book of Daniel. Uh, right now, we're just, I'm just sticking with what Daniel tells us in this dream. Uh, the king has another vision later on, which we'll look at in, in a few weeks to come. But right now, I just want to focus on this because in the dream is this big statue. Now, again, we know clearly that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is identified as the, as the head of gold. Now, this is actually sort of a setup for chapter 3, if you're familiar with the story, because what, what happens in chapter 3? Remember, the king creates this statue, right? So, again, if you're wondering, like, where did the statue come from? Well, the statue actually came from his dream. But it wasn't very representative of his dream, right? Because he builds the whole statue. It's not of, you know, gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. It's, it's 100% gold. And what's the king basically saying through that action? He's like, it's all me. Everything's focused on me. I am the, like, the number one powerful chief leader in my entire life. The most important person in my world is me, right? Um, again, don't judge him, because that's just like you and I. It's just like you and I. We have the same problems. We might not have the resources, like the king, to build and do the stuff that he does, but we have the same problems. And for some of us, it might just be a seed. For others, it might be like this oak grove, all right? Um, but we have the same problem embedded in us. It's, it's, a, it's a problem of Bible describes as sin, which means given the task of ruling, we use the power that we have not to rule in ways that reflect the heart of God, but oftentimes simply are self-serving. And that's what we see in this king. Next slide as we continue on this, and we'll wrap this up. He says, as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, and they will not hold together, just as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom um, that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces the kingdoms and the king and, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So again, in the interpretation, Daniel says, hey, that um, meteor or you know, that comet or whatever it was that came from outer space that flew at the feet of this great image, that's God. That's God's kingdom. It will come. It will shatter these other kings. It will overtake these other kingdoms or use another language. It will be triumphant over all other kingdoms. It will be set up and will never end. Never end. Um, weird dream? Weird dream? Yeah, it's a weird dream. Um, in fact, it's a deeply weird dream in a very, very personal sense, especially if you're the king. Because, again, uh, he's, I envision him laying on his bed. He's got a vast kingdom. And this is a guy, again, top of the food chain, all powerful, all powerful, who tells King Nebuchadnezzar what to do. Oh, that's right, nobody. Right? Nobody. Nobody tells him what to do. He's, he's powerful, all powerful. He does what he wants. Uh, he makes a decree and it happens. And, uh, and when you have that degree of power and authority, you also have this degree of anxiety that goes with that because you got to protect it. You've you got to be worried about it. I mean, think about your life. Think about the things that oftentimes um, grab our conscience, our hearts, that keep us up at night. Think about those things that wake you up at 3 in the morning and you can't go back to sleep, the anxieties that oftentimes uh, control us. Uh, multiply that by a trillion, right? This is, this is King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's worried about all this stuff. 
And what's fascinating to me about this entire dream is uh, just a couple things. Number one, the king had this, this incredible anxiety, no doubt, about this whole world in which he was responsible to govern. Um, and his dream is, is very disturbing because what he sees in this dream is this image, which he comes to find out he's the head of gold. At some point, will crumble. Imagine that. Imagine this right now. I want you to pause and reflect upon this. Every single thing that you have your hand on right now, 100 years from now, may just be gone. Everything that you have, any, any bit of stress or anxiety over right now, will one day simply be a footnote. That's humbling. <laughs> just think about that. Like, I mean, that's kind of a downer. I get it. But at the end of the day, you have to think about this type of stuff. Because what we're told in the dream here is that each consecutive element of the statue gets, gets lesser and lesser and lesser, right? All the way down to the feet of clay, right? Which is the, the least, um, you know, valuable element in this entire vision. But as it gets further down, the, the feet would be the most important part to keep the entire thing stable, right? But what are the feet made out of? Of clay mixed with iron, which means this entire vision, this entire image is incredibly, incredibly um, fragile. But think about this. The dreams of this king is that he's his head of gold. He, he has this image of himself that he is he's shiny, he's glorious, he's powerful. But everything in his life, no matter how shiny and glorious and powerful and and ubiquitous, ubiquitous it might be throughout the entire known world, uh, is built upon this foundation that will one day crumble. The whole thing. He had a vision for the city, his city, Babylon. But one day, what he's coming to find out is one day every bit of energy he has contributed to the vision being lived out will one day just crumble and become dust in the future. So, so think about that for a moment. Think about the big, bright, shiny, glorious dreams that, that you have. What are they? Everybody has dreams. Everyone. We all think about things. We all think about things that we want to aspire to or attain. Um, when people move to a new city or they move to the Central Coast, they have a dream. I mean, I, every year we get this fresh wave of you know, incoming freshmen, and every one of them has a dream. Their dream, for the most part, is like, you know, get an education, make new friends, have new experiences, get drunk maybe for the first time in their entire life, live with a bunch of roommates that doesn't have a mom or dad, helicopter parenting over them. Everybody has a dream. Some of them might be small, short-lived dreams. Some of them might be big, vast dreams that will ultimately one day take them to greatness, right? Greatness. But at the end of the day, most of our dreams, no matter what they are, are oftentimes built upon these, these really frail foundations. No matter how shiny, how sparkly, how wonderful, how glorious they might feel and seem, uh, at the end of the day, these dreams that we oftentimes have are, are just built upon clay. So how do we think about this? How, how should this inform us? Because what we see here with the king, he's, he's, he's facing this existential crisis, right? Which ultimately can either lead one to utter despair, Right? I mean, you can hear this and be like, hey, by the way, one day, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, definitely 200 years from now, everything, every good thing that you are doing, every investment that you're you know, in debt right now because of 
200 years from now, it will be nothing but dust and a footnote. People probably won't even remember you. That can either lead you to this overwhelming sense of despair, of fertility, or it can lead you to a place of just saying, I need to anchor my life in a different kingdom. I need to have something different to anchor myself into. And this is what we see, uh, because at the end of the day, I was, I was thinking about this the other, the other day with regard to just the, the Christian worldview. And what I mean by that is this overarching narrative that the Bible invites us to make our own is, is literally that. It's not just simply a belief system that one day we'll go to heaven when we die. It's far more encompassing that. It is, a, it is something that will change and transform the way that you actually live now and then ultimately into and throughout all eternity. Um, it's a worldview. And as I was thinking about this, the, the world, the culture that we live in also has worldviews. In other words, there are narratives that our world is constantly trying to say, hey, just live according to this narrative, follow this particular dream, Follow this particular vision of what life makes, what makes life really good. And if you do this, you will be guaranteed and promised a good life. All of us have this idea. Uh, I was thinking about, here's two popular ones. I'll just give, them, give you two of them. Number one, um, this, is, this is a popular one. I guarantee you've heard this at some point or have seen it embodied in a movie or something along those lines. It's this idea that says, do what makes you feel happy. Have you heard that? Anybody heard that? Do what makes you feel happy. No one's heard that, right? Audience, We all heard that. In fact... We've all heard it so much that we might not even be so aware of the fact that we've heard it. It's just, it's just there. It's, just, it's the water that we, we swim in. It's a David Foster Wallace quote of just like, you ask a fish what it feels like to be wet. It doesn't understand you because wetness is his world. Like, we don't even think through this. It's just, it is a part of the world in which we live in. And so what, what I would highly recommend, don't be afraid to try to poke into and to try to find flaws in some of these worldviews that are constantly given to us. I mean, at the end of the day, we live in a world that's constantly critiquing and uh, uh, trying to find objections with the Christian faith. Um, that's just commonplace in our world in which we live. And, and that's okay. I, I want to say this. That's okay. I would say that a faith that's not tested and tried is, is really not a genuine faith. It's actually good for you to go through these processes of, of maybe deconstructing some of your ideas and concepts and ideologies that maybe have helped you or that, that you've lived in and it's good to actually begin to poke into the Christian worldview and, and find out and discover. What I would suggest, it's, it's the strongest of all worldviews. It's the most sustainable. It's the most life-giving one. But let me go back to this whole notion of do what makes you feel happy. Um, that whole concept is, is filled with a fatal flaw, which is which version of you are we talking about? Was this the five-year-old you from five years ago? That, that had that haircut and that wore those clothing that you look back in photos and you're like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? That's the point. What were you thinking? That's the exact point that I'm trying to make is that, that you are looking at yourself five years in the future and thinking, what in the world was I thinking? That's my point. What we think in that moment is the best thing for us is malleable. It shapes. It changes over time. So, so which you are you talking about? The, the 10 year from now you? Because the point is, is it's always reshaping. Our desires, um, they ebb and flow. They grow. They, they shrink. They, 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 they change. And the point that I was making, if you build your life upon what makes you happy, and you make decisions based upon what makes you happy right now, there's a very, very good chance that it will lead to a, a completely undesired end. I'm being very nice about this. The flip side is it will lead to total 
utter destruction potentially. And I've watched this happen over and over and over again. I am personally the product of this as my parents divorced and my mother had the decision to make in her own life that led my family onto a course of deep, deep brokenness because this was the narrative that was bought into. Do what makes you feel happy. It leads to brokenness. It's not life-giving. The second one that I think is really powerful that we live in is be free to live as you choose as long as you do no others harm. Do whatever you want, but as long as you don't do anybody else harm. So again, the question that needs to be asked of this, like, like who gets to decide what is harm and who gets to decide who the others are? At the end of the day, that decision is in you. You are the powerful tyrant. You are the Nebuchadnezzar of that world. And what I'm suggesting, it sounds life-giving until you poke a little bit into it and begin to realize it actually does not work either. And what we see in the story of Daniel is that this king, even though he has this dream, is built upon a foundation that is completely fallible and easily broken and brittle, just like our lives. Which then leads to the very next thing that I want to close up with some thoughts on here, which is the rock that became a mountain. So listen to the passages uh, that kind of describe this. Verse 45, he says, Just as you saw the stone that was cut from the mountain by no hand, and that it broke in pieces, uh, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall be after the dream. The dream is certain, the interpretation is sure. Um, can you find verse 35? Do you have verse 35 in there somewhere? Okay, check this out. He says, then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold, they all came together and they were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of some threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and then ultimately filled the whole earth. So this is, again, the image, the picture that he has. Um, three things I'm going to talk real quickly about this and I'll wrap this up with some summary thoughts. Number one, Rock is the least common of all of these elements. So if you have ever seen images of the Middle East, um, you, you know the landscape is, is extremely rocky. Like, like rock is everywhere you go, right? Everywhere you go. It is extremely common, which means it, is, it has no value really whatsoever. No value whatsoever, especially compared to gold, silver, bronze, iron, so on and so forth. Rock is just worthless, which tells us something about the kingdom of God and how God works. God's kingdom Oftentimes, if you're not careful, you can miss it. Why? Because it's just common. God slips into places where we're not always times assuming or expecting to look. It's common. And we see that with Jesus. And the second thing that we notice about this is that it overtakes all of the kingdoms. Um, New Testament language was it's victorious. It triumphs over all other kingdoms. And then Lastly, we see that it grows, that it becomes more expansive. So it has a beginning point, and that point then begins to telescope out or grow forth from that particular location until, like what we're told in the dream, it fills the entire earth. And, and again, these are images that are found throughout the Old Testament as well. well. One of them that Isaiah describes, he says that the glory of the Lord will fill all the spaces upon the earth. But the image is that this, this rock will grow into a mountain and begin to fill all. Um, these are very similar and reminiscent of some of the uh, parables that even Jesus himself gives, that the kingdom of God is like, you know, uh, leaven, and it just begins to expand, and so on and so forth. But the, the image that I want for us to think about and to consider is this phrase 
that is oftentimes coined by theologians, and it's just a simple one that I want you to know. It's called already, but not yet. Already, how about we all say that? Already and not yet. Already and not yet. So what that basically means is the kingdom of God is already, it's already here. It already happened, already began, but there's a not yetness to this kingdom, which means we live in a world right now that there are things that if you're careful, if you're observant, if you have eyes to see, in other words, you are able to see evidences, traces of God's grace constantly at work in people's lives, in this church, in this community, in your small group, in all spaces. If all you ever see are all the things that are wrong, it's possibly because either A, you have a hardened heart, you are not able to see, or you're just willfully cynical. The invitation is to ask God to give you eyes to see, and as you have eyes to see, you'll begin to see what God is up to in this world, and that's the already. But at the same time, simultaneously, we live in a world that is filled with deep brokenness and pain and people making decisions that will cause ripple effects in their lives and the lives of those whom they love, and that deep pain will go on, in many cases, for generations to come. That's the not-yetness of the kingdom, that we look to a future that one day God will come and set everything right. But in the already-ness of that kingdom, it has already been launched at a point in time. And that's where we have to go to the very end. And I'm going to finish by looking at that original image once again by going back to the beginning of asking the question followed before by looking at the two uh, statements, which humans are given the charge to rule. We are wired to rule, but the question is, what and how should it all be ruled? What does that look like? And to really thoroughly investigate and to fully understand that question, what does it truly look like to rule, to enter into right kingdom living, to have a mindset that is rightly focused on bringing reign and rulership in a way that's actually life-giving as opposed to Nebuchadnezzar-esque? And... To understand that question more fully, we have to go to the story of Jesus, because that's where the whole story is constantly taking us. And I want to finish with a couple of passages and just wrap it up with some thoughts, and we'll be done. So when we come to the story of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, for example, Mark chapter 1, we read this little passage. It says, then Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of the gospel of God, saying, listen very carefully to what Jesus has to say. This, this language that Jesus is about to use should immediately take every observant, aware, seeing human being back to an event in Daniel chapter 2, because that's exactly what he's doing. He says, listen, the time is fulfilled. In other words, it's just now happening, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. What Jesus is announcing here is that this whole kingdom thing, this whole language, this whole image of this great stone coming into the world and smashing and overcoming and overthrowing worldly empire, worldly kingdoms, evil, wickedness in this world, both uh, tangible and intangible, both seen and unseen realms, Jesus says, has, has begun. And you know, the follow, you follow the story, Jesus goes into a synagogue, immediately begins to teach. There's a dude who's you know, possessed by a demon. Jesus casts the demon out of this person. Immediately, Jesus goes on. He begins to heal people. It leads into him giving people food, giving their dignity back. What we see is Jesus saying, this is what it looks like for God to rule and reign. It looks like people are fed, who are hungry. It looks like people who are, uh, who are once in, undignified or stripped of any form of dignity being given their dignity back. People who were once 
uh, in the throes of tormenting spirits, you know, deep, deep despair or depression, being liberated and set free from the very vices that got them there in the first place. And then we go on to see Jesus continuing on this very theme of, of kingship, of kingdom, of leading, ruling, governing. Um, Mark chapter 11, he says, and many shouted. This is when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey, if you're familiar with that, that image, that story. Again, this is, this is literally straight stage drama or like street drama at its finest. Jesus is literally acting out something that he does not want his observant people to, to miss. And as he rides in, people are shouting. They're throwing palm branches down. And what they're saying is Hosanna, which means save now, Lord, save us from all of this. And in their minds, they're thinking, save us from these evil, wicked uh, Romans who have oppressed us, and they're taxing us, and they're occupying our land, and we want to see them dismissed and removed. And Jesus has something bigger, deeper, more uh, ubiquitous that needs to be dealt with, which is evil and wickedness at its root. And then it goes on to say, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord. Then they say, blessed is the king, kingdom of our father, David, that is coming. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus is actually approached by religious leaders like, Jesus, tell these people to stop saying this. You're not a king. And Jesus is like, if I say anything, then the rocks will cry out. Because this is the, the fact. This is the truth. I am the king. I've come in. And it goes on to say in the story of the life of Jesus as we come to John chapter 16, as we follow the life of Jesus, he gathers with his disciples around a table just before he's about to go out and to be arrested, tried, tortured, and then ultimately publicly shamed and then executed on a Roman cross. He sits down with his disciples and he uses this really phenomenal language. Just listen to what he says. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Take heart. I have overcome the world. This is, this is fighting language. And the question that you and I have to think about is what does it mean for Jesus to overcome evil and darkness in this world that is apparently arrested and in the throes of and governed and enslaved by evil? Uh, where does Jesus get his crown? If, the, if this is like kingly language, well, the gospel writers tell us. Because immediately following this, Jesus has a crown of thorns placed upon his head. Where's his scepter? Well, we're actually told in the story that because these religious leaders and the Roman guards mocking Jesus, they put a scepter in Jesus' hand. They put a robe on him that's made out of purple. All of this is imagery to decry the fact that he is the king. You want to look at what a king looks like, what it really looks like for him to rule? This is Jesus. Uh, where is Jesus going to be lifted up? This is where we see him lifted up. He even used the language, unless the Son of Man be lifted up. This is kingly ascension to the throne type language. But where did this happen? The cross. So the question is, what does it look like to really truly be one that rules like God intends. Apparently, looking through the lens of Jesus, it looks like laying one's life down. It doesn't look like Caesar. It doesn't look like Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't look like Pharaoh. It doesn't look like taking up sword and chopping other people's heads off. It doesn't look like violence. It looks like humble servanthood to others. 
One final thought. In the book of Colossians, Paul, the New Testament writer, would say something along these lines. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Well, when did this happen? The cross. The cross was the moment. God's kingdom. So, see, the way that Jesus would bring his kingdom reign in this world was that Jesus brought the smashing rock of God's kingdom in a paradoxical way whereby he himself would be smashed. He himself would be crushed by earthly powers. And in doing so, he would expose to the world all the best that empire and religion and all the best that humanity has to offer, which is nothing but a way of death. He dies, comes out the other end, resurrects, and says, I invite people to a new way of being human, a new way of ruling and reigning. And the invitation for you and I is to see this new paradoxical way. God's kingdom would conquer these other lesser kingdoms by exposing them for what they are, all of its vile and broken and distorted means, allowing all of that to do to him what it constantly does to you and I or what you and I do to other people. Jesus allows it to be stripped bare naked for all that it is and then offer a new way of rethinking. Of living, which is what the Bible actually word uses the word to repent, which means to think differently about your life, to adopt the way of Jesus, which means to be a disciple. So the invitation of Jesus is to look at our lives, look at our dreams, look at those things that compel us, drive us, empower us, and ask ourselves those long questions. Where is this going? Where is this dream of mine headed? How much investment am I giving to this thing right now? That maybe one day will just be nothing more than a footnote. That doesn't mean to abandon it at all. I want to be really clear on this. It doesn't mean to abandon it. It doesn't mean to just sit around and be a slacker and watch you know, Stranger Things uh, all day long. Uh, it does mean that look at it in a new light. Look at it in a light that says, how can I live for this thing that God has called me to in a way that looks like Jesus, serving others, laying my life down? This is what Jesus does for us. He's motivated by deep love. John 3, 16, the famous passage we're all familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that if we should believe in him, trust in him, give our lives to him, we will live. And this is the invitation to turn to Jesus and live. Or we can continue to hold on to our own dreams as tightly as we want. And at some point, some point, those dreams will fade and break because they're always on brittle footing. So, as we close, I want to invite you to really think about and consider this. I don't know where you're at. What types of wrestlings do you have going on right now in your mind? What types of things maybe you need to deal with before God right now? But the invitation for you is to do so, to deal with God on whatever those issues are, to lay them down at his feet. And as we go to the table, as we eat the, the, uh, the bread and dip it in the cup and are reminded that this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, it looks like receiving, first of all, God's grace and being washed and being fed and being satisfied and then being a part of that agent in this world and going forth and feeding others and caring for others, laying our lives down, being those that are willing to be broken on behalf and poured out for others so that they might live. That's what the new humanity is all about.
That's the invitation for you to lay aside all other alternate narratives that are misleading, guiding, lying to you, that may have stained you or affected you, destroyed you, distorted you, and to receive a new mind that comes from the Holy Spirit by turning your heart over to him. So how about we all stand, and we're going to have the worship team lead us in a song. And as we partake of the communion, we'll have some leaders up in the front that are going to be here to give you the bread and the cup. And we have some rugs off at the side that as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you're more than welcome to just come uh, get before the Lord. If you want to be on your knees, if you want to just sit before the Lord, you're more than welcome to. We'll also have some people up in the front that would love to pray with you. I'll be up in front uh, happy to pray with you for anything that's going on in your life. We just want to use some time to, to have and do business with God. So let me pray and let's respond. God, we thank you for your incredible love and your grace and the fact that, Jesus, you were crushed for our offenses. You were bruised for our iniquities. The very crushing that happened to you, the blows that you absorbed of human brokenness and sin and chaos become the means of bringing us peace. So God, we invite you right now to search our hearts, to help us to do business with you, to respond rightly to you as we sing, as we pray, as we take the bread and drink the cup.